0: It was a long time ago, I first came to Greenville, and uh, Randy Loper, as I was at college at, with Randy, drugged me to a uh, meeting to hear Mr. Carroll for the first time. It was an interesting experience. All right, I can say that, we had, it was different. There was something very different about his message, and um, I watched and listened and didn't understand a great deal. And I kept going and watching and listening and not understanding a great deal, and it dawned on me after a while that when Mr. Carroll said God and when I said God, we were talking about something different because you couldn't understand his life unless you understood the one he understood as God. And I think about that and it, it comes to me as, as we come to this passage, if we are going to understand Isaiah, we're thinking about the last section, that's where we're going to be next week. We'll get to that last section. But if we're going to understand what He has to say there, we are going to have to understand God as He understood Him. And so we need to take time. We've been taking time. We have gone over this for the last couple of weeks. Different features of, of guiding us to a a, con, a common idea concerning who God really is. But it's so, it's so important for us because I could ask you this question as we start. Who is the God that you walk with? Day after day. See, all these people that he's speaking to, that Isaiah is speaking to, would consider themselves to be the people of God. We are the people of God. And yet he has to tell them that the God you're serving is not the true God. So before we look at this and begin to sort out chapter 6, let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. While we come and give you thanks for your word we thank You for the Spirit of God. Come to teach us that Word. And we're asking tonight as we think on who You are that You will give to us, all of us, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Well, we want to see You. We want to know You as You are so that we can live with You as we ought to live. And so, Father... We're coming and asking You to do wonderful things tonight for Your praise and glory, and we trust You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen. It was the year King Uzziah died. We don't know that whether this occurred before he died or after he died, but during that year, Isaiah had a vision. All right, Now, a vision in the Old Testament, when the prophets have it, there's two kinds. Let's just describe them. There's two different ways. One, a lot of those where God shows you something like you're looking into a television set or something. You know, you're looking out there and you see something. And then God would inquire, what did you see? It starts off there. And I said, what do you see? Uh, and he says, I saw an almond branch. Good. And we're going to talk about that almond branch. And he goes on, that kind of vision. There are a number of people that had those kind of visions. This is the other kind. This is a vision which is, it's a little hard to describe because it's, it's having an experience. It's being brought into a place where you not only see something, but you are there. You are experiencing it. It's kind of like a dream in a certain respect, except there's no escape. You've been brought in. You're dumped there. You're held there. And you have to experience what goes on there. But it's always symbolic. It's always, in order to make a point, it's not a real picture in a certain sense. But it is in another sense. It's pointing out certain things. Isaiah had this vision. We don't know why he, why it was that he, it occurred in that particular year, but the way it's written implies that something had happened on that particular, it, it, with that event, and we believe probably it was the death of Uzziah that triggered in him thoughts which God could use. Now he had the vision because God imposes on you. This isn't something you think your way to. Visions are something God gives. He gives in His sovereignty when it's time. And Isaiah has that. What was it? Well, if you read chapter 5 again, if you go through chapter 5, you find out there God says something is happening in Isaiah's day. He says, I came to my people over and over again. I asked them to live for my glory, and they wouldn't live for my glory. This is the heart of it. He calls them the vineyard. I came and looked for grapes, and that is something for His glory. I looked for something that was different because they were mine, not like the rest of the nations that didn't belong to me. And when I got there, I found them to be just like the rest of the people. Everything that happened in Syria happened in Israel. Everything that happened in Egypt happened in in Israel. Everything that happened in Assyria happened in, in Israel and in Judah. The people of God. And so he says, this is leading right up to this vision. He says this, therefore, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down the hedge. I have been protecting this people and keeping them for myself in a peculiar way. And right now I am going to tear down that hedge and I'm going to back out. Now, he's not giving up on them, but he's backing up in a real way. So that's how about that for an enthusiastic setup. Here he comes and he finds out that something has happened. Now, this transpires in the spiritual realm. Nobody would have been aware of it here. But life was going to change. It was going to change for everybody there because God was no longer going to take care of them. They didn't even know how he was taking care of them. But once they passed over this, something changed. Isaiah knew that. Uzziah was probably the... Uzziah's reign was probably the high point of the experience as far as peace, prosperity, sh- military strength, safety, good life between the Solomon's day, when the kingdom divided after Solomon was there, and all the way to the end. Israel was being ruled by a man named Jeroboam II. He was a very capable ruler, was not a godly man, but was a capable ruler. Uzziah was a capable ruler, and those two countries dominated the area. It was peaceful, and everybody loved it. But those days are over, and they're coming rapidly to a conclusion. And Isaiah knows that, that what's out ahead is, is turmoil, and by the time Uzziah dies, it's turmoil. And it seems that what happens here is that what can happen to any human being, you know, we, we kind of trust in God, right? But we look to leaders to take care of us. And we think we have a great leader here or a great leader there. And they'll be able to guide us through this. And I wonder if Isaiah didn't. I don't know this because we just have that record. But something is connected to that. That maybe Isaiah was counting on this. And this was the great leader. And maybe would something would he would come back in and be able to take over. And, but he died. It seemed to have shaken Isaiah. But in order to comfort him and in order to prepare him, God came and spoke to him, gives him, or gives him this vision. Now, let me just tell you, there are two views with regards to Isaiah. I'll just put that out there right now so everybody will know. Some people believe that this vision is the initial calling of Isaiah as a prophet. I don't believe that. I believe this is later. Because he says earlier that he prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah and on down the line. And it would be hard to coordinate that with in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So that I believe what has happened is he's already been speaking. He's already been prophesying. He's already been delivering messages. But on that day, he sees something different. He sees something new. He sees something fresh. He gets a life-changing experience, which will enable him to produce some of the highest literature and theology of the Old Testament. So let's read through it. I want to read through the first part of that passage, the vision of God. There are four things we want to learn about what Isaiah saw in this vision, what he saw and felt which changed his life and dominates and dictates what he has to say. In the year of the king of in the year of King Uzziah's death I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. With two He flew. And one called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's hard hard to know exactly what the picture is here, but... Um, We know there's multiple seraphim. There's no other description of seraphim. They're called, uh, the word means they're the burning ones, the shining ones, the fiery ones. All right. The same word, it's related to the word. Remember when the Hebrew people were out in the wilderness and the fiery serpents came out. All right. They came out and bit them. Well, that same word is used here, but but it's the only place we have them. But God is in this, this glorious picture of God, and around Him are the seraphim. It says they were standing there, but it, apparently they were flying because of the, of the vocabulary here. They're flying; they got their wings there. They're flying around, and they are up there, and they are calling out—not to God, but to each other. And it's quite a scene because we don't know whether how they're doing this. They're calling back and forth. You can imagine it different ways. You could have them in this situation where one over here—it's holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The heaven and earth are full of His glory. Could have been that they, one was saying, Holy, Holy, Holy. And the other one recounts with Holy, Holy. We don't know, but they're calling back and forth to one another. And as they speak, listen to what happens, it says there. This is as the angels or these seraphim speak. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out. That's, that's not God. That's just the seraphim. And the place is shaking as they call back and forth to each other. And it says, the whole temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand. How about that? coal in his hand that's the way it seems to be He's would taken it off the altar with tongs but he has it in his hand and he touched my mouth with it and said behold this is take this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away i want to start off with this vision we're going to get to the last part of this chapter later on but we want to start off with what does he see and there are four things i want you to see that he did see here and they dominate the entire book of isaiah and the first thing he sees is the king on his throne the king on his throne and again this is this is a powerful chapter as he sees he's in a, he's in a temple but it doesn't necessarily in fact it doesn't even fit the temple that was in Jerusalem that is he's in a temple but it's it's massive because He sees a series of something, which a series of steps, because it was real common in that day. Because you want your king to look like a great man, right? And he's just a human being, right? So what you do is you put him on a perch, you put him way up high, because when you look up to somebody, and he doesn't have to be big, you can just look up to him. He's he's big because he's up there. And the picture here is that he comes in and, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. He's on, he's way up there. And you can kind of picture it with stairs ascending the whole way. And it says this, that as he's up there, he's seated on that throne, and it says his robe, the train of his robe, completely fills up the entire area. There is no place for anybody to stand. Now, he had a robe for two reasons. It also makes the guy look bigger, all right? So if he's dragging up his robe and he sits down in the chair and it goes way down there, it's like a train. That makes the little guy look like he's a big guy. But he says here in this case, there was this robe that goes all the way down and fills up everything. Now the other feature we need to know about that robe is it defined the king's personal space. You don't step on the king's robe. That is the definition of where you can come to. And there he is, seated on that throne. Now let me again go back over some, some basic points here. Kings did not sit around on thrones. All right? They were people. When they were making decisions, they would go down and talk to people. But when they had decided, they had listened to the arguments, they are going to say, well, are we going to go to war or not? Let's say that was what the argument's about. Are we going to go to war? He listens to this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. He weighs it all, and then he ascends to the seat. When he gets to the seat, all voices stop, because from the throne, two things happened. There's two things that a king does from the throne. One, he says what's going to happen, right? legislates. says, this is what we will do. When he says that, there is no argument. You can talk to him down here, but you can't talk to him on the throne. He is actively ruling because the other thing he does from the throne is he pronounces judgment. You're going to be tried by the king. You would be brought into that place and he goes to the top of the wherever that throne is. And from that throne, he would pronounce judgment. Isaiah is in that presence and he sees the Lord. What does he see him? He doesn't see him just living in heaven. Not passively watching history go by down there. He looks down and he sees God, or he looks up and he sees God, and where is he put? He's on the throne. He is in the place of active ruling. It doesn't matter whether Uzziah is on the throne, and it doesn't matter who is going, what's taking place on earth. Nothing else matters. Now, just one other feature that comes up here that, again, you can see how powerful this is. In order to look better, again, you want to make your king look good. You can put him up there. You can put the train down here. But they would also bring the important people. The princes would stand down along the side like you're at a wedding. You know, you got all these princes over here. The generals would come in there. And so if you have an envoy coming from some other nation and they want to make peace or do something and talk about something, you got all the guys up here. It's me and all the guys. This is it. This is who we are. This is the splendor of our nation, all right? What did you notice in here? I saw the Lord seated on a throne, and His robe fills the temple. There is no place for anybody else. He is the King, and He sits there all by Himself. There is no other King. He's not dependent on people on this, ne- on this earth. He's not, he might use, He can controls what goes on in the earth, but He doesn't need them. They don't stand with Him. They don't promote His glory. He is the king, most high. That's what the first thing he saw. He's on that throne. Now, one of the interesting features in the picture is Isaiah's in this room, which means he's already sort of encroaching on God's space. All right, this is, this is a tough moment here. <laughs> As robe has to come, because if it fills up everything and he's standing there, it's right there. He has nowhere to go, no way to move and not be in trouble. That's the first half of it. Isaiah understood that God rules in the kingdoms of men. And if you read through the book of Isaiah, you will note that he has no respect as far as fear of anybody else. The Assyrian king, what difference does it make? The king is on his throne, and the king is our king. He's high and lifted up. Nobody can contest with him. So he's always calling men to trust God and not trust anybody else. You're fool," he says, in essence, to trust anything else when the king is seated on the throne. Now, he lived this because he saw that. Now, it goes on here. Something else happens here. So he's the king on the throne. What else is he? Then you get this powerful passage. The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. and With two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, the word holy is, again, this is pretty well known, but in a sense we have to think about it for just a moment. It's one of the hardest words to define when you think about the attributes of God. I'm not even sure if you can call it directly an attribute. It is a summation of a characteristic that is truth concerning God. It means this that God is completely different than anything else there is. He is in a category of one, and everything else is in the other category. That's the first part of it, that He is completely separate. But the other side of it is that He is completely superior to everything else that you could put in any other category. So He's not only different, but He's better than whatever else could be placed in His presence that's why the smoke comes up, because it's one of the pictures in the Old Testament that no matter how hard I try to comprehend God, I can never grasp it. The smoke has the idea of mystery. There is a a mysterious element to all of this that I can talk about it, but I can't grasp it. I can't understand it. Why can't I understand it? Because I live in a fallen world. And holiness involves perfection, absolute perfection. Where have you ever seen absolute perfection? We haven't seen it. It is not possible to produce on this earth. I've said many times, I was a a chemistry major. You measure purity in chemistry by degrees of impurity so that a Part per million is filthy dirty from a chemist's perspective. Parts per billion, you're getting better. Parts per trillion, now we're getting down towards pure. And that would be considered very, very pure, but it's still impure. It still lacks that degree. So when you get to God, no matter what you're discussing, no matter what element of His character you talk about, He is perfect in that so that if we talk about his wisdom, there is no lack of wisdom. He never makes a mistake. He never has a wrong thought. That is, an erroneous thought. He's never confused about anything. If we think concerning his power... We know of men who become very strong men, but he's, this is Isaiah chapter 40 next week, no matter how good you are on this earth, no matter how powerful you have something, get the most powerful bomb that was ever made and, the, and you blow it up and it's blown up. It's gone. The sun is a very powerful engine producing Energy for us day after day. We run on this earth on the energy which flows from the sun. But if God didn't intervene, one day that sun will burn out because it's not endless in its capacity. As it gives off the energy, it depletes itself. As God gives off energy, He remains exactly what He was before. He's holy. And when we move into those realms, which is where we typically think of the holiness of God, when we get to the idea of his truthfulness, he has never, ever told anything which wasn't perfectly true. He, he doesn't have any element of untruth within him. He has no element of unlove in him. He is the loving being. Every action he takes. Now, that's, that's the atmosphere we're in here. Holy, holy, different, completely separate is the Lord of hosts. And then he says something which is, this should shock all of us. He says this, all of you should know it because the entire earth is filled up with his glory. The glory is the manifestation of it. That's what the word glory there means. It means a, a visible way to perceive something of the glory of God. It surrounds us every day of our our lives. We are surrounded, it tells us in the book of Acts, Paul speaks about God and, and unbelievers and says we live and moved and had our being before we ever converted in God. But we not only lived and moved and had our being in God, but He surrounded us. If you look up to the biggest things there are out there, they're screaming about the power and the glory of God. If you go to the most minute things, you find them to be extremely interesting, unbelievable. If you look at living things, if you really look, they are screaming of the order and perfection and wonder that belongs to God. That's what he says the whole earth is full of His glory. And he's different. And men sit there and don't even recognize it. But in that atmosphere, it was recognized. Now, that does something to Isaiah. So first thing he saw, the king on his throne. The second thing he sees is holy. And I want you to know, this is the one that really impressed him. Because this is his favorite term in the book of Isaiah for God. God is to Isaiah's favorite term 28 times or 26 times in the book of Isaiah. He calls God the Holy One of Israel. That's who he is. That's his favorite term for him. The Holy One of Israel. In fact, it's his term almost exclusively. Many other books in which are some of the other books where it's found are writings. They're historical writings of his. He's the Holy One of Israel, he never forgot what he what he experienced there. But you know, holiness is a terrible thing. It's a wonderful thing that God is such a wonderful being, but it's not good if you're there, and you're not holy. And suddenly, he is in this terrible. He's in he's in a real problem here, because he is face to face with the one who is seated on a throne judging. He has heard the sound, the the statements of the the truth of these men of these angels speaking back and forth about the holiness of God. He has felt the presence, the, the power of that atmosphere. He is in a holy atmosphere. Sometimes on this earth, you do sense that. Sometimes you will sense the spiritual difference between one place and another, and you just get to a place and you say, wow, it's just nice to be clean again. Now, that's not wholly clean. It's not pure and clean. But you can sense that some places have an impure and a terrible feel to them. Some places do not. He is in a place where it is absolutely pure, but that puts a burning light onto his being. A burning light which Isaiah apparently had never felt before, had never understood before. I was in that presence. He says this, woe is me, woe is me. Now, this is a day, I mean, we have to get used to this in the day. We, we take powerful words and we use them for commonplace things. So, oh dear, hit my finger, oh, woe is me, you know, sort of. In the Bible, there's just this note this: In the Bible, when it says woe, people are in real trouble. They're really, really in trouble. Woe is, is sort of the pronouncement, it's over. Or it's very, very close to over. I am in a desperately difficult place. All right? So that if you drove your car over a cliff on the way down, you would use the word woe. Because now we are... This isn't... Oh, I'm close to being... Tr- no, I'm in trouble. I'm in real, real trouble. And if we were thinking about being the people falling down there, you are. You got the feel for where Isaiah is because the next thing he says is, Woe is me, I am undone. I am undone. I want to get this paper because I want to get you some of... Um, Edward Young in his book on uh, his commentary on... Isaiah used a whole bunch of them. It says, I'm cut off. Right, There's just ways you could translate that. I'm cut off. Cut off from what? Cut off from God. I'm uh I'm made to cease. <laughs> I've come to the end of it. I have I have come to the end of my cessation of my I am undone. And then he finishes with this When I am doomed to die. That's where I am. I am doomed to die. We could use this phrase for it, picking up a New Testament term. Woe is me. I'm condemned. Woe is me. I am lost. I am lost. That would be a terrible place to be in, in, in the judge. Why does he say that? It's very pointed what he has to say. In that holy atmosphere, something has happened. He has heard seraphim calling from one another. Holy, they have been describing God. Isaiah has already been a prophet, and he has been describing God. He has been telling people about the way God is, and as he gets to this point and he hears what holy beings, pure beings, can say and what's going on there, he realizes, I'm undone because my lips aren't up. I have, I have used my mouth in ways that it's not, they're no longer qualified to have the praise of God on it. I am no longer qualified to speak of God as He is. My failure to keep my words under control has led me to a place where I cannot do what those seraphim do. And he's he's doing this honestly before God. That's what he feels. And God intended him to feel that. He intended him to feel that. Let me just say something. When the Spirit of God wants to speak to you, He's going to tell you what's wrong. He's not going to tell you you're generally wrong. He's going to talk to you about where you're wrong. And He's going to tell you exactly what's wrong. Isaiah felt that. And he felt something else there. He says not only that he was a man of unclean unclean lips, but he says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He is not making an excuse there. He is not saying, oh, we're all bad. That's not the point. The point is this, that I'm just like everybody else. I am just like us. We are the people of God. We were called to a high calling and we don't have what it takes. We are not morally up to what you called us to do. Proclaim your glory throughout the earth. Now he's going to learn something here. This is the third thing. So the first thing he learned was what? Kings on his throne. Second thing he saw was he felt what holiness is all about. And he now understands that to a greater, greater extent. But here's the third thing. He learns that God's the Redeemer. What Isaiah does there is what everybody has to do when you realize what God is saying to you, what He is showing you to be. He confessed his sin. Now, the next time you use the word confess sin, think about Isaiah. We use that really glibly. I confess my sin. Now, Isaiah confessed his sin. In the presence of God, he said what was true of him. All right, sometimes we... Well yeah, we go. But here it is. He's standing there and he found out something. There's only one thing Isaiah can do at this point. And what is that? He can say what is true. He used his lips to admit what his heart was telling him was true. Real confession comes from your mouth. It is the point at which you it with your mouth acknowledge that God has said something to you, and this is wrong. This has to be changed. Now Isaiah isn't saying this has to be changed because he's already you know, accepted the fact I'm dead. I'm dead in the water. But this is what I am. I am not hiding. I am not running. I am not going to try to avoid what you're saying to me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I've seen the king. I'm dead. I'm dead. Now, what's he going to find out? Well, then a signal is given, and one of those seraphim that are hovering around God flies down to an altar that's there. This is not the altar where the sacrifices were made. This is the altar of incense. It's the altar that he's going to. And there's a stone. It's hard to tell whether it was a burning coal or... Because the word could mean a burning coal, but it also was a word used of a stone that was in the actual gold place where the where the altar where the incense was burned in the tabernacle. And it says he went and he, he grabbed one of those stones. Now that would have been a hot stone. And he takes that stone and he brings it to Isaiah and he touches his lips. Now. This is a dream in a sense, but he has to go through this. I don't know what kind of horror that would be. I mean, I've been burned before in my life. I was telling kids today when I was a chemistry major, we, we made our own, a lot of our own glass equipment. Hot glass and cold glass look the same. Let me just tell you that. And if you forgot which end you laid it down, which way you laid it down, wait. Just wait, because a mistake is a real bad mistake. And i picked up. Your lips are extremely sensitive. And he comes up to him, and he puts it on there, and he says two things to him. It's important, the two things. And they're both important here. He says, your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Now, that sounds like redundancy, but it's not. He needed forgiveness for the guilt of what he's done, because every time you sin, you need forgiveness for the guilt of what you do. That's the forgiveness part of that passage. But the other one is this: your iniquity is taken away, because before God could use him, he has to purify him. The eternal God wants to purify him, and he says, "I'm going to do. I'm going to change your lips." I'm going to do a sanctifying work in you. I am going to do that. And that's what this touching symbolized. He's going to change those lips and He's going to make them into lips which are capable of bearing the message of God. God, who sits on the throne, who is the judge, who is holy, is also the Redeemer. And that's also a favorite term that Isaiah has. He's the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, your Redeemer, the one who you need to turn to. Now, I want you to note this all the way through the book of Isaiah. He says he basically says this. I don't care what your problem is. I don't care what condition you're in. I don't care what you're facing. The right thing to do is go to God. You're full of sin. Go to God. You need help. Go to God. Go to the Lord, who is your redeemer. He is the one that is always the supplier of your need. But we'll note there that as you go, you are going to be met by God in forgiveness and in cleansing. That's what he wants to do. Now you can see this all the way through the book. When you get to the end of the book, we're going to see it makes all sense to him. There's a passage, which was one of Mr. Carroll's favorite passages to go to in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 57, it says this, Thus says the High and Lofty One, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place with Him also, who is of a humble and contrite spirit in order to revive the Spirit, to put new life into the man who's humbled. That's what I do. That's the summation of what you see up to this point in that passage. The high and lofty one. He inhabits eternity. His name is holy. He doesn't alter from that. But I live there with those who humble themselves. What does it mean to humble myself before God? To accept the limitations and the wrongness of who I am and to live low before him, calling on him. And what happens to that man? He revives his spirit. He puts new life into him. He does forgive and he does revive. We'll see that again next week. Go a little further in the book. They were thinking at the very end about the temple and how they needed to rebuild the temple. It's in chapter 66. And he says, listen, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where are you going to make a place for a temple for me? I made everything, right? I made everything. How are you going to make a place to meet with me? He says you don't need to make a place to me but to this one he says I will look this is the one I'm going to pay attention to this is the one who can come near to me this is the one I'll draw near to to him who is of a humble and contrite spirit who trembles at my word he trembles at my word he's the redeemer and this, is, this is the God that Isaiah... This goes right through the book of Isaiah. This is, this is a daily experience for him. This is, this is the, the God which frame, is a, forms the framework of how he makes his decisions every day because he knows this, this being. But there's one more element because we could stop there and we would miss the book of Isaiah. Because then after that gets done and God has purified him and everything is fine, right? Now we're all good, right? Now I can go home. Back to my drop out of the vision here and I'll go back to living on the earth. But you don't get to go back yet because we're not finished. We're not finished. What does he say next? And I heard a voice saying, who will go for us? Who shall I send? And who will go for us? Now, what's this all about? What's this all about? Who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah, having just been purified, blurts it out. (laughs) He he has been afraid to say anything up to this point. He's afraid. But now the fear's gone. He's been made right with God. He has his, everything is is straightened away. And he blurts this out. Here am I. Send me. Well, there's only one in the room, so that would make, you know, he picked it up. He got the point. All right. But there's another side to this. God has purified him, but that's not the end. You remember the other day we were a couple weeks ago we were talking about this, that we have a tendency to believe that my being purified from sin is God's end for my life. That if as long as I get saved, that's definitely, if I get saved, I gotta get saved. Right? And once I get saved, got that behind me. Now I can go on living. Alright. And although what God did at the cross is extremely important, I don't want to make any Diminution of the, the wonder and the importance of what God did in buying me back from sin. That was not the end. The end is that he might make a new creation. That he might take that person who once was dead drenched in sin, though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as wool. But then I'm going to do something with that. I'm going to make that person a servant of mine to glorify my name. I am going to bring them into my plan. So immediately, as soon as Isaiah has been cleansed, God says this to him, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Here am I. Send me. He Immediately brings him into the plan. I want to say that for you because when God works in your life to show you that you're in sin and purifies you. He has a purpose in that. We need to get hold of the fact that there is a kingdom of God coming and we are to be part of the coming of that kingdom. We're not just to be pretty little people that, that have been purified for our own sake. We are not here to live for ourselves. We are not here just to work out our own plan. We are here to glorify God. And that's what Isaiah says, Nick, I'm going to do this. I want to go quickly through what what he says to him. He finds out that he is the one who is the director of his way. That's the fourth thing. And this is what he'll say to Israel. See, why is it that God tore down the hedge? Why wasn't he tore down the hedge? We've got to back up here a little bit. Why did he tear down that hedge in chapter 5? Because the people of God weren't doing the will of God. It wasn't just because they were sinners. It wasn't just because impurity was there, but the impurity meant that the purpose for which they had been created as a nation wasn't being fulfilled. And he was tired of... It was actually, not just tired, but it was actually teaching people the wrong thing about God. That God blesses arbitrarily. That He just blesses Israel because they're Israel. Not because of anything else. And the God who's out there, He just picks out certain people and He shows favoritism to them, but the rest are out. Because they act just like I act and they get the blessing of God and I don't get the blessing of God. That's what is being portrayed to the earth around. He said, well, we're going to stop that right now because I'm just going to pull this hedge down. I'm going to stop blessing you. I'm going to stop taking care of you so that people can know what kind of a God I am. We saw that. You're going to, you're either going to Show who I am by blessing, or you're going to show who I am by cursing. And that, that has taken place. Now, Isaiah has to go out and preach to them. He says, here I am. And he said, here's what to do. Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not proceed. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Now that sounds real depressing, that's his ministry. You're to go out and just tell them what I'm telling you to tell them. He doesn't say exactly what that is at this point, but you go out and you give the message. You tell them what you saw. You tell them what I tell you to, to present. But when you go, realize this, that because of the condition of the nation, for the most part, this is what you're going to run into. They're going to listen and they're going to refuse it. When you listen to the word of God and you don't act on the word of God, you become dull to the word of God. But keep on speaking it whether they get dull or not. Don't don't let them off. Keep on going. Keep on preaching. And then he comes to this question, how long? How long? All right. And this is important for us because The last part of the book takes them all the way to this point. It says, until the cities are devastated without inhabitants, houses without people, and land is utterly desolate. That's during the captivity. Isaiah will never see that, but he's going to preach to it. In fact, that's kind of what we're going to be thinking about as we get to that passage next week. And the Lord has removed men far away, and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But he says something else here, and this is what I want you to Yet there will be a tenth portion in it. And I'm not going to go any further than that, but he says the tenth portion. He says even though it's cut down, even though things go wrong for the nation, there will still be some because I'm not going to leave myself without a, without a witness. You see, why do we keep on preaching when people get dull? We keep on preaching because not all will get dull. And we keep on teaching and we keep on encouraging. And we keep on exhorting and we keep on talking about the greatness of God. Why do we keep on going? Why did Isaiah keep on going? Because it may be that most of them pass it by, but there's still those ones. God is still seeking to save that which is lost. There's always some. There are the individuals, the ones who are, are, he's working in and, and bringing to himself. So Isaiah has to preach. And he's going to go out and he's going to do it. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, That was the God that dominated his thinking. It dominated his preaching from this point forward. He was the king who was actively ruling, involved on this earth. Day by day, actively ruling and ready to judge. He's the holy one. The one who is absolute in his power and pure in every every dimension of his being. He's the redeemer. He's the one you have to turn to. Although that might seem fearful to do, it's always the right thing to do. You hear his word, you humble your heart, and you let him do his saving work. And when he does it, what is he? He's the guide of your way. He's the one who is going to tell you what's next. All through his message, he's going to say that, I have done this so that you can be this. You're going to fulfill my purpose. Wonderful God. If you don't understand that, you don't understand the book of Isaiah. All right. Get that. And it begins to open up. Do you know that God tonight? That's that's the big question. It's easy enough to go through those truths, but do you know it? Do you know that have you been released from tensions about what's going on in the world? Because you know the king's on his throne. It will go his way. And and you can't change it anyway. So you, so we come to accept. Him. Have you come to the place where you realize that God's the holy one? He doesn't. He's absolutely pure. I can't change that. I can't bring him down. I can't. I can't somehow hope that he will change from his position because I can't reach up there, and you can't reach up there. Have you ever come to that place where you realize that I can't reach that place? There's nothing I can do to get there. The only thing I can do is go down here. I can humble myself. I can with my mouth say who I am in the presence of God and ask him to deal with that and know because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the saving work. Do you know him as the one, if you've come to that place, who has given you a work to accomplish on this earth? Something to do. You've been brought into his plan for the long term. He's a wonderful God. That's Isaiah's God. Let's ask the Lord to show us who He is. Father, we come again and ask as we finish tonight that You'll continue to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Yourself so that we might enter into all that You have for us in this life. and By faith, glorify Your name. Come trust You for it in Jesus' name. Amen.